I hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, reading verses 1 to 5. Uh, Let us hear in reverence and in faith and thankfulness that we have God's revelation. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. I don't think it should be lost on any of us that uh, our Lord has delivered His last sermon before His death and resurrection. He goes to the Passion and for the end for which He came. It's an interesting application, I think, that having heard the last sermon, He's telling us how to live. Now, as He goes to His cross, we watch Him live out the faith. It's a lesson to each of us. We have a lesson and we have the majestic application in our Lord's own life. It should not be lost upon any of us as to how to live, given the fact that He has taught us how to live. He teaches us and then He goes to show us in the Passion narrative. And this is the introduction to the Passion narrative. And the Passion is announced prophetically in verses 1-2 to and then providentially in verses 2 3 to 5. Prophecy and providence. The pillars in the life of the Christian church. Uh, The message, of course, is not a new one. What is new is a link between the coming passion and the Passover. It is either late Tuesday or early Wednesday, depending upon how you mark out uh, the Jewish reckoning of the days of the week, but the Passover is two days away. It was an obligation to participate in the feast. Imagine that. The Scriptures bring to us obligations. I don't know that we think in those terms anymore. I think we think in terms of total freedom. Christian anarchy. I don't know, but there's an obligation as a faithful servant pressed upon our Lord to participate in the Passover feast. Ironically, He's going to fulfill the feast and His death and resurrection. Jesus is going to be obedient to the law of God, even to His own hurt. Imagine that. It's easy to obey God when it's easy to obey God. It's entirely different when it's done to your own harm. But Jesus is showing us the way of the righteous servant. By the way, theologically, foundational to our salvation, 
is the active obedience of Christ, obeying all of the law of God so that the merits of his obedience can be charged to our account. That's the doctrine of justification. Apart from the merits of the righteousness of Christ, none of us would be saved. We are saved by the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. It's a grand story of our redemption as the people of God, saved by an alien righteousness, namely the righteousness of Christ. But again, Jesus will fulfill the event and make it over. That's the drama of our redemption. Passover celebrated the greatest redemptive event in the history of the nation. But there is a greater event yet to occur. That for which the Passover in Egypt looked forward to. It's going to be eclipsed. The Passover meal is going to be eclipsed by Christ and the sacrament of the Lord's table. In that event, he is also redefining the people of God by the cross and from ethnicity to the faith. Faith is now that which defines us, I believe, for all times. The Passover lamb was a substitutionary sacrifice to effect redemption from Egypt. Jesus is the greater fulfillment in the antitype. He will redeem us from spiritual Egypt and call us out to leave spiritual Egypt into the greatest wandering and journey pilgrimage of all time. Leaving the old for the new, the great city where our Redeemer yet lives. By the mark of the blood, the angel of death passes over us. God tells the nation, Exodus 12, mark your doors with blood and I will pass over you. Your, your life and my life is marked by the blood of the Passover lamb, Christ, and the angel of death will pass us by. In fact, all of the minions of the kingdom of darkness will pass us by. They can no longer deceive us to remain in spiritual Egypt. It's very interesting, uh, Jesus as a priest is also sacrifice. That didn't happen in the Old Covenant, it happens in the New. As priest, Jesus offers himself as the Lamb of God to redeem his people. Old Covenant, the priest offered sacrifice, Christ is now the sacrifice. The prophetic announcement uh, that he's going to uh, uh, the Passover meal, and he's also going to uh, be arrested and eventually crucified, is a prophetic announcement. Means, of course, Jesus is the greatest prophet of all times totally in control of his own destiny because he can announce it beforehand. You and I announce things all the time beforehand. Darling, I'm going to work. Darling, I'm going to take a walk around the block. May happen, may not. When Jesus announces something, it's certain to happen because he's the great prophet of God. More than that, he is the Word of God. He is revealing himself as the means of reconciliation to God. 
He is announcing the event beforehand as the Word of God creating salvation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ will go as the divine creative Word creating salvation for His people, speaking, and it will be so because of who He is. There is, as you know in the text, a prophetic announcement that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. I know it's a bit tiresome, perhaps, to hear my litany on the Son of Man. But nonetheless, this is our Lord's most favorite designation of Himself. And we ought to understand it. I would commend to you the reality that we must understand it to understand the reality of what Christ is about to do. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. What happens in 13 and 14 is absent the interpretation of the great vision of Daniel 7, where the people of God are suffering tribulation. As we marry the two, vision and interpretation, I think what we learn is that our Lord is fulfilling Daniel's prophecy of the end-time tribulation. In other words, he's inaugurating it, beginning it, and the cross and the crucifixion is the signet of that great event. Again, it's not new, but sometimes we need repetition, do we not, to learn properly. Matthew chapter 17, 22nd verse. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. It's a great drama of our redemption, death and resurrection. You and I will suffer at some point in our lives, barring the coming of Christ and the first death. Second death will pass us by. The great Passover event. We will also be raised. The hope of the gospel. Death will not hold us. Neither did it hold our Savior, neither will it hold us. If you're not a Christian, that is the simplicity of the gospel message. Now Matthew chapter 20, the 28th verse. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. He ransomed his life for many. The many will be ransomed. The Son of Man is going to suffer. By the way, that in and of itself is, is an ironic thought because in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, uh, he is installed as the great king over all things. He receives eternal dominion and glory. How does he achieve such accolades? Because he faithfully suffered according to the will of God so that the kingdom is advanced by suffering. That's the irony of the kingdom of God in the present age not a very popular message. In fact, I would commend to you the reality that most Christians reject it. I embrace it and affirm it. It is the way of the cross. It's the way of life. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What is the cross? But shame, humility, and suffering. How do we advance the kingdom? Through shame, humility, and suffering. 
our Lord is the quintessential, eternal example of how to live in the present age. It's the vagaries of the health and wealth gospel. Come to Jesus, He'll make you rich and happy, and uh, you'll achieve stardom. Uh, Starbucks coffee every day, every hour. One grand celebration to another. Really? Is that the cross? Is that the life we're studying in the Gospel of Matthew? Perhaps we need to read it again. Hear the message again. More importantly, to watch Jesus live the reality in the great narrative of the Passion. Something of this, if you again, just to review uh, the reality that Christ has uh, inaugurated both suffering and kingdom, uh, Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 3 to 6, John the Baptist is in prison. Interesting, suffering as a child of the faith. Christians all over the world being thrown into prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He just simply says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. That's the irony of the kingdom. We see what's happening, we don't fall away. The reality of the kingdom is being advanced by suffering, advanced by healing, advanced by the Lord as the sovereign creator who begins the end-time reality of the kingdom of God in the events he's just described. And the irony, again, he's going to advance it by suffering. Something of that is captured for us in verse 19. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. The wisdom is understanding the true nature of eschatological reality that everything starts and finishes in Christ. We have, of course, not achieved uh, the finishing aspect of it, but we certainly have begun the starting of kingdom and tribulation. The presence of God and His reign is now invisible and spiritual. The Jews wanted military conquest, but it begins in Jesus with the conquest of sin in the heart and by vicarious atonement, the Son of Man, going to ransom Himself for His people. This will become clear in the Passion narrative. Again, we hear the sermons, and now we're going to watch it in the drama of Christ. It's a great application of this reality, I think, in the text of the Apostle John. We'll turn to book of the Revelation, fourth chapter, the 11th verse. You are worthy, our God and Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. He goes to the cross to create salvation for his people, to create spiritual life. We have this hymn that we sing on occasion. 
all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall and crown him Lord of all. Sing it as a church. We ought to sing it as individuals. Acknowledge him as king over every aspect of our lives and live accordingly in light of the cross. And so crown him Lord of all. The prophetic announcement indicates the sovereignty of Christ as king, not just because Jesus knows the future, because he planned it from eternity past. That's the prophetic reality of our Lord's announcement in verses 1 and 2. He's going to go execute in the passion narrative what's been planned from eternity past. Who can do that but God? I give to you Christ the Lord of glory. And so we ought to crown him Lord of all. We shift now from prophecy to providence, verses 3 to 5. Great providential event described by our Lord, Matthew 26, verses 3 to 5. I simply call it the providence of the majestic Christ. Chief priests, the elders of the people, assemble in the palace the high priest, his name's Caiaphas, and they plotted. They plotted to arrest Jesus in some deceptive way. Deception implying it's been hidden. It's not hidden to Jesus, it's known. By the way, it's known to all the people of God because it's described in Scripture. To kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Politicians playing to the people. Come on, we ought to play before God, ought we not? So the Passion is announced as an act of divine providence. By announcing it prophetically, Jesus is telling us that he is in complete control and mastery over every circumstance that we are about to study. in complete control and mastery over every circumstance that's about to occur. Even their plot to deceive and to kill. That is an incredible statement of the majesty of Jesus Christ. By the way, people plot against Christians all of the time. Judas, one so close to Jesus, will so plot. He is in complete control and mastery over everything that is about to occur. Think of that in your own life and living. It's a humbling thought. Interpreted that Jesus is king over everything. I say this because of the acknowledgement, uh, the commentary that uh, John gives to us in the 10th chapter of his gospel, in the 18th verse. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. 
everything that's going to happen to Jesus in the incredible violence of the cross is by his divine acceptance and really execution. They take his life. Here we learn that he's giving it. The majesty of the Son of God. By the way, they're going to be held accountable for taking his life. But in the mystery of the divine providence, he is willingly giving it up to ransom his people. That's the incredible drama of redemption. The two verbs gathered together and plotted together in verses 3 and 4 are in our allusion to Psalm 31. Have your Old Testament, I trust you do. I encourage you to turn to the 31st Psalm. The verbal markers turn us back to the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Psalm 31 and the 13th verse. For I hear the slander of many, and there is terror on every side. Here are the two verbs. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. The context is a lament psalm of a righteous sufferer. He's going to suffer from the hands of evil men who plot and who conspire to take his life. He calls upon God. Jesus will call upon God. Look at verses 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. What a beautiful statement. Of all the vagaries that we face in life, even the brunt and object of the plotting of evil men, the psalmist says, my times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Jesus living out the Psalter. God delivers his people as he will deliver Jesus. Verses 23 and 24. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Application's obvious. It can be fulfilled in Jesus, but you're going to find yourself reading the 31st Psalm. Some point in your life, people are going to plot and conspire against you. Maybe not to take your life, but to seek your hurt. Call upon the Lord. He delivers his people. Your times are in his hands. Jesus is the preeminent example. It is interesting that the verb to plot is used of the righteous man. Daniel chapter 6. Again, if you have your Old Testament, I trust you do, turn 6th chapter. Great prophecy of Daniel. Context. Uh, the wise men of the court of the emperor, envious of Daniel. How many sins are birthed by envy? It's incredible, is it not? They counsel and devise a plot to catch Daniel in a trap. The emperor signs a decree presented to him by these men that a man could not pray except to the emperor upon penalty of the lion's den. What does Daniel do? He doesn't stutter. 
He goes up to his room, he opens the windows, and he prays. He opens the window so all can see him, that he refuses to engage in idolatry. He refuses to worship the emperor, because the emperor is not God. There is but one God, and the man of faith must prosecute his faith to the one God, even to his own hurt. That's why Daniel opens the doors for all to see him. By the way, why was the nation in captivity in Babylon? Because of idolatry. And Daniel is the quintessential man of a life of faith, refusing to be idolatrous, even though he is in the very heart of idolatry in the court of the emperor. Daniel keeps praying. He's thrown into the lion's den. He calls upon God to deliver him. Maybe he had Psalm 31 memorized. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. He's delivered. King was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in the Lord. I'm not saying that the Lord's going to deliver you from every physical event in your life, but he has and will deliver you from every spiritual vagary that could ever knock on your door. In fact, because you are in Christ, they will not knock upon your door. They will pass you by. The emperor orders that the wise men be cast into the den where they are devoured. The irony of God protecting his people they wanted Daniel to be eaten by the lions, and they are the ones that are eaten. That is the providence of God. They seek to do harm upon one of God's anointed, and the harm falls upon them. That's one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, in the plots of men, that you can be patient and wait upon the Lord, and you will see your deliverance. Certainly you will in the eternities, if you don't see it temporally. Another parallel is the life of Joseph, is it not? His brothers are envious. Again, how many sin spawned by envy? How did you get so blessed? How did this happen to you? Well, I don't know. Go read the book. It's all there. Envy. What a terrible, terrible sin. Don't envy your neighbor. Praise God for God blessing your neighbor. That's, that's providential stuff. Be very careful about interfering divine providence. His brothers, what a great story, plot to harm one blessed by God. God wants to bless Joseph at the expense of the others. That's God's business. No, but they have to envy, don't they? He is spared, but taken into captivity. He will in time deliver his brothers, and God uses their evil act to provide salvation from famine. What's the commentary of Joseph on all of that? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph, think of it, in the vagaries of being carried away on the caravan to be sold into slavery and thrown into prison. Do you think he ever wondered, how did I ever fall into this mess? And you're a child of the faith. That's what's going to happen to you in different ways and in different degrees. And what is God going to do you? Deliver you. spiritually deliver you. And that's never failed in the history of redemption. 
God always delivers his people, his people spiritually. None are ever lost. In all the evil plots of men, God will make it for good. Believe that. Walk by faith. Wait. Wait upon the Lord. The verb is also used, the Apostle Paul, the Jews plot to take his life. He escapes. Testament, Acts chapter 9. Should not be lost on us that the apostles are living out a life very parallel to the life of their Savior. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. Too many days have gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Have we read that before? Yeah. Jesus, Joseph, Daniel. I suspect if you were a Christian in the Soviet Union, or pardon me, Russia, you'd be thinking the very same thought. In America, they just conspire to kill us spiritually and theologically through deception. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch in the city gates where they might kill him, but he's delivered. He escapes. There is something of a commentary in this. It's a beautiful reality of an allusion to Daniel chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Allusion to Daniel 6. God keeps his people spiritually and none are lost and all will be raised physically. The great day of redemption. It's very interesting that uh, the, uh, I, I use the phrase temple mafia. It's the guys running the cultus in the days of Jesus. Uh, they engage in deception. Verse 4. That word's used in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23 of Antiochus uh, engaging in deception to trick the Jews into Hellenizing their faith. That's the drama of our redemption today. The kingdom of darkness trying to deceive, to get us to become one with the culture in which we live. To reject the truth bit by bit and bit by bit until in the end state of our lives we have nothing left to believe in. Ironic because the temple mafia is now identified with the ancient enemy of Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes. Nevertheless, God is able to deliver his sons. Joseph, Daniel, Paul, Jesus. God overrides the schemes of men. He saves us as king in that he defeats all of our enemies. He saves us as prophet because he is the prophetic word, the word of God. 
who creates our salvation by his spoken word, saves us as king by defeating all of our enemies. The brothers of Joseph are humbled. The enemies of Daniel are killed. The Jews in the days of the Apostle Paul swept away by the providence of God. The providence, of course, reflects our Lord's sovereignty to use what is evil to affect good. They're going to plot to kill him. Does it mean that our Lord loses? You look at the scoreboard, Temple Mafia 21, Jesus 0. Is that? That's really what's going to happen visibly, and the apostles are going to look at that scoreboard and say, the gig is up, let's go home, let's just go, let's go back to fishing. That's what Peter does. Sometimes we do that in life. Well, the Lord mistreated me, boo-hoo. I think I'll just give up, up chuck, throw up, and leave. Very careful about looking at the scoreboard from the eyes of physical man. Let's look at the spiritual commentary. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, to put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is all done according to the providence of God. God's purposes were in their evil plots. But notice, verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Christ suffered, Christ was delivered. Another commentary on this is just as revealing of divine sovereignty. Acts chapter 4, verses 27, 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Incredible. They engaged in an evil act and God had purposed it from eternity past because God is sovereign even over evil. That really means that God is sovereign. One of the greatest philosophical problems of the modern-day philosophers, how do you deal with evil? Jesus has just dealt with it. He ordains it, and he defeats it. He overcomes it and gives to us the resurrection. If you're not a Christian, you will be ruled over by evil throughout all eternity. If you are a Christian, you will escape, and God will deliver you spiritually, and ultimately physically. It's a majesty of the sovereignty of God. Let me look at a couple of Old Testament texts. I know we struggle over these doctrines. Isaiah chapter 46. Verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Who can say that but God? God does, and everything that happens is according to his good pleasure. He smiles over everything. 
application for us is even when we frown, heaven is smiling and will turn our frowns into smiles. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. Sovereignty of God even over every evil act. Conspiring of men who are envious. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. It's foundational to worship. I mean, how, how could you worship any other God but that God? It's one of the problems today. We've so redefined God in our image, who would worship him? All we keep him around for is to keep us happy. No, we worship him because of who he is. We crown him with many crowns, Lord of all. Because throughout all the generations, his will is being accomplished. And that will includes rescuing his people from evil. It's a great illustration of this in terms of a story. The historic document uh, that you and I know is 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 22. It's a clash of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Ahab, the evil king, become an idolater and he's harmed the people of God. He has harmed a man and stolen his vineyard that belonged to that man. He took it improperly. And so God's going to go exact revenge. The prophet tells him what's going to happen to him. The dogs were going to lick his blood. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 20 to 23. I'm sorry, I'm kind of slow. I'm using a Bible that I'm not familiar with. But I'm slow anyway. 20 to 23. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? Council of God's asking, Who's going to make this happen? As if he didn't already know. One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. He said, you will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. See the point of that text? God is going to use a lying prophet to go affect his will to destroy Ahab. That's incredible. You and I could never so engage. God can because he's sovereign over everything. It means to us, Abraham has done an evil thing. And you know what? Ahab, pardon me, is going down. You know what happens on the field of battle? Ahab is, Ahab is deceptive. He doesn't dress up like a king because he knows he would be the target of all the enemy forces. He masquerades. It's someone else. And an enemy archer pulls his bow and strings it with an arrow and lets it fly. Imagine the physics of loosing an arrow and it flying through the air, striking 
Ahab at the crease in his armor so that he bleeds to death. And the dogs will lick the blood on his chariot. The word of God fulfilled in all of its precision to remind us of God's sovereignty over everything. I can barely hit a target with a scope. And here is a nameless, aimless archer who lets an arrow fly. And Ahab goes down. And the word of God is fulfilled. Evil men will rise up against us, skilled in deception, but by the grace of God, we will overcome. His sovereignty over evil is our salvation. Uh, John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation. In this world you have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4. Deceptive lying prophets will come and try to come into the church. They cannot touch the people of God. Why is that? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If it were not for the greatness of our God, we would long ago left the church and been deceived. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It's interesting in our own text, Matthew chapter 26, sovereignty is clearly seen because the counsel of the mafia is that Jesus is not to be taken during the feast. That's exactly what's going to happen. Circumstances will arise to press them into action, meaning the Lord Jesus is in total mastery of every circumstance. Taking him during the feast is our reminder that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. By the way, that in and of itself, in my mind, forgive me if I offend you, shoves Judaism into the dustbin of history because Christ has fulfilled it all. He is the Passover lamb. And he's remade the supper into his own sacrament. The link with Jesus with the Passover lamb is now all the clearer. It's the point, I think, of the divine providence even overturning the counsel of evil men to fulfill the purposes of God. It's a great reminder men propose, but God disposes. Proverbs chapter 16, the fourth verse. The Lord works out everything for its own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. In our case, the greatest good will come out of the greatest evil, the cross. And so Jesus tells us the future as a prophet. He is in control of what is ahead of him as king, and he secures the outcome intended for us and our deliverance as the great high priest. The outcome is our deliverance. More importantly, as we watch the drama of our 
redemption announced prophetically and providentially. He's telling us how to live in light of his prophecy and his providence. The application is to go and so live. To bring glory to his name in light of the fact that he is the son of man who gave his life a ransom for his people. And may it perhaps be expressed in our own hearts this day. By the hymn, crown him. Lord, over every circumstance of your life. And so live as he taught us to live.